Engaging Leader Episode 31, Four Ways You Can Be That Lucky Leader People Want to Follow. Does your leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, leaders. Most people want to be on the winning team and follow a leader that's winning. You think of Southwest Airlines, Amazon, Google, and Apple. From the outside, it seems like they've had everything going for them. Many think the leaders of companies like those have simply been blessed with good luck. But are they truly luckier than other leaders? Today we'll be discussing the true story of the race to the South Pole between Raoul Amundsen and Robert Falcon Scott. These two men led teams that set out within days of each other in October 1911 in a race to become the first explorers ever to reach the pole. Amundsen's team not only reached the pole more than a month sooner, but his was the only team to return alive. The two leaders were of similar ages, with comparable experience, and they faced the same weather and harsh conditions during the race through Antarctica. After the race, many people claimed that Amundsen just got lucky, but he himself believed that great leaders create their own luck. The conversation you'll hear on this episode takes place in a much less hostile environment just after a much more enjoyable race. My dad, Marty, and I were in southern Florida to race in a half marathon. After the race, reflecting on our experience led us to discuss the leadership lessons from Amundsen's race to the South Pole. As longtime listeners of the Engaging Leader know, Dad and I approach these issues from different perspectives that make for an interesting dynamic. My background is in leadership communication, and Dad's is in finance and operations based on his experience as CFO for a few organizations and more recently as owner of a restaurant and catering business. In this conversation, we discuss four lessons we learned from Amundsen about being that lucky leader people want to follow. Amundsen himself, he realized later after the fact that people were attributing his great victory to luck. And part of that was because that in Scott's diaries, which were later discovered after his death, Scott was frequently blaming bad luck to what was happening to them. He was cursing, his diaries are cursing the weather. Oh, rotten luck again. Here we are stuck in our camp. And yet the two guys had the same weather. They, They left within days of each other. But here is a great quote from Amundsen when he later recognized that people were attributing his victory, his great accomplishment to luck. He said, victory awaits him who has everything in order. Luck, people call it. Defeat is certain for him who has neglected to take the necessary precautions in time. This is called bad luck. So we're going to be looking today at how a leader can create your own luck. How you can be that lucky leader that people want to follow. So part of being a leader worth following is creating your own luck. So we're going to look at four ways that leaders can create their own luck to be a leader worth following. 
Okay, well, the first one is own the outcome. And, you know, I, I, it kind of takes me back to our, our race yesterday, Jesse. Um, a year ago, you and I ran in the uh, Miami Beach Half Marathon. And the time that we achieved, we're almost embarrassed, we are embarrassed to admit, was two hours and 45 minutes. It's a very slow half marathon. And, you know, I think uh, in a way we, at some point in time, we finally owned that outcome, probably out of embarrassment, but <laughs> the outcome was that, you know, we were uh, not really prepared. We were, both of us, carrying some extra pounds and underestimated the, uh, the issue with hydration and, and, uh, and fueling, you know, fueling your body and being prepared for a race like that. So this year, we, we came a lot better prepared. You and I had both done some some really rigorous dieting and, and, and working out, training. We had come down early and, and, and did some hot running and, and we'd, we'd really put some emphasis on our nutrition and our fueling and our hydration. And consequently, you know, yesterday we had a pretty good race. We were two hours flat, about a 27%, 27% increase. Now the conditions were a little bit better, but still it was the, the same race and all that. and and. Um, to me, that's a good example of owning an outcome. There was a temptation last year to blame the whole thing on the heat, which of course was a big factor. But heat or no heat, there were some runners who were over an hour faster than us last year. So obviously the heat wasn't as big of a factor to everybody. Some people managed the heat quite well. And so we owned that outcome and we said, next time we're going to do this, this, and this better, and we're going to make it happen. I learned from a friend of mine, Kent Julian, who we actually had featured on our, on our podcast episode 26. He's a, a great speaker, and one of the things he talks about in his speeches is this formula that he calls E plus R equals O, which stands for events plus response equals outcome. But it's our response to those events that lead to the outcome. And successful people and successful leaders recognize that. Unsuccessful people believe that E equals O, that the events that happen to me create the outcomes in my life. And Kent says that he learned that lesson from his own daughter, Mackenzie. One day he got a call from the school that his daughter was having a problem and they had to take her to the hospital, and they weren't really sure what the situation was, but it sort of sounded like it could be drug-related or anorexia-related. You know, she had collapsed or something like that. And he thought, his initial response was, somebody did something my daughter somebody messed her up or abused her or something because she there's been no sign of anything that would lead to drug abuse or anorexia or anything like that I mean what is what has gone gone on here well as they got into it they discovered that she has type 1 diabetes juvenile diabetes did I get that right type 1 or type 2 (laughs) anyway juvenile diabetes so and that's what caused it and you know that is a, juvenile diabetes is a very big issue and it defines a lot of people and Mackenzie could have allowed that to define her and said well now I'm handicapped and now I'm never going to do anything big and important in life and as Kent has watched his daughter it's to see how she has responded to that he has seen her go on and do amazing things and, and make something special of herself and he says, you know, I would never wish juvenile diabetes on anybody. I would never wish, be glad, uh, be glad that this had happened to her. But I will say that Mackenzie is a better Mackenzie because of this experience 
with juvenile diabetes, that she has, that event that happened to her, she has had a response to that event that has caused her to be a better Mackenzie than she was before. And that is truly living out E plus R equals O. And when you compare what Scott wrote in his diary about, oh, this rotten luck, and I can't believe this stuff has happened to us, that is not owning the outcome. And I'm not saying that he's not a great man. He, you know, I, he's got more manliness than I, in his little finger than I have in my entire being just by going to the South Pole and, and doing everything he did. But he did not own the outcome. And whereas Amundsen did, and his team fully believed in him to get him to the South Pole and back. And he, because he took responsibility and took action. And that's the first step in being a, quote, lucky leader. Yeah, I think that those are great examples, and it leads into the second aspect of what Abinson exemplifies for us, and that is cope for the best, but prepare for the worst. Amundsen, you definitely would say, was an optimist. You would never set out for the South Pole if you weren't an optimist. But he planned ahead with the assumption that bad things were going to happen, and he was going to prepare for them. So, for example, what... There's that story about the, the altitude measuring thermometer. Yeah, there's that story about some navigational instrument that they need on a journey like that. And uh, Scott gets to the point where their instrument breaks, and he's, he's like... Cursing oh their bad yeah, luck. Yeah, isn't that bad luck? The one instrument they absolutely have to have, it breaks. Well, Edmondson, on the other hand, what, brought four or five of these? Yeah, he had four of them. Figures, you know, one of these is going to probably break. Or one of the guys will break it or something, you know. We're going to lose one of them. Right. And, and sure enough, they did. And, you know, and <laughs> he always seemed to have one because he had plenty of them. Another example is they had time in camp when they first get to the Antarctica, when they're, they're just sort of uh, holed up in their tents and, and are just waiting for the right weather. The, the way they used that time was amazingly different. Scott did some, took advantage of some of that time to prepare, but for the most part, his team was playing cards and entertaining themselves. Amundsen had his team using that time to test their equipment and make refinements. And one of the things that they discovered was that their sledges that had their equipment packed in, they discovered things that could make it easier to get in and out of their gear. Just traveling to get down here, you get to the airport, you got to go through security. Well, you and I have discovered from long years of travel that what you want to do is your little one-quart bag, you have that right up at the top, so when you go through the security line, you, it's, it's easy to get in and out. You get your electronic devices, they're right up on top. Well, similarly, Amundsen discovered that, hey, if we do our sledges in a way so that the lids pop off kind of like tea canisters, we can get Every night when we stop to, to camp, we can just reach in and get out what we need. Scott, on the other hand, his sledges were overloaded and unwieldy and prone to tip over. And every time they camped for the night, they wasted almost a half an hour. They had to totally unstrap them, take these big pack containers off of the sleds and to get to what they, their supplies. And then when they were ready to go the next morning, they the reverse. They had to load everything back up. So remarkably different, and, and that all came from this advanced preparation. And you think about as a leader, that's not easy to get your people to invest that time in preparing, even if you recognize the importance of preparing. So you gotta cast a vision. Look, I know that you'd rather be playing cards and, and so forth, but 
we're going to be the first people to get to the South Pole. We're going to be famous forever, and we're going to get there and get back safely. And the, we're, the way we're going to do that is by discovering these little things that if we prepare now and do them ahead of time, it's going to make that trip a lot better. All right, so let's move on to the third thing. That's um, follow the discipline of the 20-mile march. This was made very clear to me by Jim Collins in his book, Great by Choice. One of the big learnings that he got from Amundsen's example was the, what he called the 20-mile march. Every day, Amundsen said, we are going to go at least 15 miles, and we're not going to go more than 20. I don't care if it's we have great conditions, great weather. When we get to 20 miles, we're stopping. And I don't care if it's a blizzard out there, we're going at least 15 miles. And that was a discipline both to make sure that you went, had a minimum threshold that you went that you did, but also that you didn't go so far that you overextended yourself. On the other hand, Scott would have on a beautiful day, he would push his team. I mean, maybe they'll go 30 miles or 35 miles because they could. And they would, it would take them 10 or 12 hours and they would just push themselves to the point of utter exhaustion. And then, but when something bad happened, you know, maybe somebody fell into a crevice or it was time, uh, maybe they, when they got to a certain point and realized this isn't really the greatest spot to set up camp, but by then they're too exhausted to go any further. Like, I don't care, we're stopping here. They had no margin left over. Let's say the next day there was the slightest bit of weather but you're so exhausted from having gone 35 miles the day before that you say, you know, the weather's kind of bad, let's just stay in camp. Meanwhile, Amundsen's pushing on they, they, because they're, they're well rested, they had margin. Okay, the weather isn't great today, but hey, we got to get at least 15 miles in and we're ready, let's go. Therefore, he gets there a whole month before Scott. That's so applicable to leadership and to business, don't you think? Yeah, Jess, I'm kind of thinking, like, you know, this is definitely a case, Scott and Amundsen, of not only achievement, but also survival. Mm -hmm. And you think about businesses that start up, and, and rather than have a more steady approach and say, okay, I'm just I'm going to I'm gonna get that 17 and a half average miles per day, no matter what, and I'm not going to put all my resources out there, I'm not going to burn the candle both ends, I'm just going to, I'm going to get on that course, you know, and then if I get, I'm going to get some ups and downs, I'm going to have days when it just seems like, wow, this business is booming. But you know what? Those days are coming where there's going to be a big dip, and, and I've got to be able to be steady enough to get, get through all that. Yeah, I think it's sort of a tortoise and the hare story. And you look at your business, Daddy. You're in the restaurant and catering business. You've now been, you're, it's been, you've been there for more than 10 years. That's one of those industries of high failure. I bet you it's got to be 90% of restaurants fail in the first five years. You're still, but yet you're still alive and kicking after more than 10 and you had, you've had years where you've had uh, pretty healthy margins and you probably would have been tempted to go spend that, enjoy the, the fruits of your labors, but you, know, you took sort of a, a healthy, uh, healthy profits to live on and then you reinvested a lot of it over time. So you've, had, you've made expansions and improvements on the restaurant, you've taken care of your people, and you've, you've also managed your day-to-day -day energy because the 20-mile march it's both about the discipline of going at least 15 miles and the discipline of not going beyond 20 so that you have margin so if you're burning 
the candle at both ends all the time as a leader, you're less likely to have that positive energy to lead your people from a position of strength. You're going to have more of those times when you've worn yourself out or you've worn your team out and so you're not speaking with grace and you're, you're more curt, you're not really uh, going to have the emotional intelligence at your disposal to lead people well. You're going to be, you're going to have those times of grumpiness um, and that's going to diminish your leadership ability. Uh, no question about it, you know, um, without that margin, either you're not going to have that, that extra energy you need to take advantage of an opportunity that comes along, or along comes a disappointment and you failed to prepare for it. And I, even after 10 years, I walk into the restaurant some days and I think, oh my gosh, what's happening? We're so slow. You know, and, and, and sometimes you get into the middle of a summer or some, something where you, you, you thought you had plenty of cash reserves and, and pretty soon they don't seem all that plenty and, and you just don't know what's going to happen. So without margin, you're, you're really at risk of not surviving, which is what happened to Scott. You hear the phrase a lot, this is a marathon, not a sprint. Surely the race to the South Pole was a marathon, not a sprint. And leading any worthwhile cause is usually going to be a marathon and not a sprint. And of course, you and I ran a half marathon yesterday, and we saw it as it's, we're going 13.1 miles. Each mile we wanted to complete in 9 minutes, 7 seconds or better. If we had jumped out of there, like a lot of people do, they start the front, the beginning of the race really fast, and maybe that first mile they did in seven minutes or eight minutes, they probably wouldn't have had the energy to, to finish the race, or at least not finish it strong. And we just made sure, hey, we, we want to at least do 10-minute miles, and we want to have some that we're doing better, but on average we're going to be 9.07 or better. That's a really great analogy, uh, the marathon versus the sprint. Well, let's uh, move on to the number four and the last point that we want to focus on, that is, focus on one goal at a time. This is so hard as a leader, and we just talked about this in episode 27 about how to use the big little outcome scope to pick your target, and how leaders who focus on one to three goals tend to hit one to three goals, and as you try to have more goals, you actually go backwards and you, you hit fewer of them. Amazon had one goal, get to the South Pole <laughs> safely. Just get to this, be the first one to the South Pole. Scott actually had two goals. Well, yeah, he also had a, a really strong scientific bent. So along the way, and once they got there, they were going to also knock a few balls out of the park by advancing the, science, the basic science. Yeah, he had certain scientific measurements that he wanted to take that were going to be helpful and in fact after he was dead <laughs> he's dead and they find his instruments and everything that some of his, his measurements really were useful to science but they weren't very useful to him when he's dead the fact that he had two goals definitely blurred the the focus and that's what's so problematic when you have more than one goal and as a leader that means you're communicating more than one goal so when you're communicating your team multiple goals you're diffusing the focus and the energy. Instead, if you want people to be laser focused on one thing. And at one point on his return trip from the pole, they had only five days of food left. And their next cache was five days away. So they needed to get there, use that time to get there. 
But instead, even though the margin there was thin, he decided to stop and take geological samples. He gathered 30 stones, which added 35 pounds of, to the, the sleds that he was carrying. It required seven to eight miles of work out of their way. It didn't get them any closer. And of course, they died on the way home. Well, you talk about a deadly distraction. I yeah. mean, if you were following a leader, you know, it seems you certainly would have a lot more confidence than someone with a razor-sharp focus. And, you know, if, if I, especially if you're in a, a race for survival, you know, you would trust that leader to, with your life, because you are, you know. Listen to this quote from Amundsen. Our plan is one, one and again one alone, to reach the pole. For that goal, I have decided to throw everything else aside. <laughs> well, Pretty, is there any question? Implicitly, though, he also had the goal of getting back safely. Oh, sure, right. Because he intended to take full advantage of that fame and, and reputation, and that was part of the success, is to come home alive. Right. And, and everything he did was in service of that goal. So that same quote, he goes on to say, to tell his men, sleep and eat well so that we have full strength and are in good spirits to fight toward the goal which we must attain at any cost. But that, that's total clarity on this vision, this purpose, and he, he made clear to them why we're doing this, how we're going to do it, what it's all about, but there was one goal. And that's why when I teach about the big little outcome scope, it's big because there's one big goal that you're going after, and the little part, there's three little objectives that support that goal, but don't make any mistake about it. We may have these three objectives that are going to get, but it's about one thing that we're going after, and it just avoids uh, any kind of confusion. Well, it's, it's, it's a good model for business because, you know, with everything else that goes on in business, there really is still one main goal of all business, and that is survival. I agree. And nobody's going to disagree that a business needs to be profitable. You're not going to, or you won't survive. And today we talk about sustainable businesses a lot. And, and so to, be, to sustain a business for the long term, it requires more than profitability. And it's it certainly, you could say that's survival. But it's something more than surviving. If there's yeah. actual thriving. Too. Yeah. You know, the very first thing a business strives to do is to survive. But there's a lot implicit in that. It's really sustainability. Whatever objectives you have or mission, it might be a nonprofit. Whatever that mission is, in the long run, it's it's irrelevant if you don't have a survival plan. Right. In other words, you've got the sustainability to, to do all these things, to gather the resources, to manage those resources, to optimize and overcome all barriers and ups and downs and everything else. If if you don't have a long term survival plan, sustainability plan, then you, you achieve nothing. And I think a leader also needs to translate the goal into a higher purpose. So for example, with the race that we ran yesterday, of course we had this goal to get to the finish line. And we, we knew we wanted to have a big improvement on last year's time. Did we really, did we really care? Did that time matter? Not really. No, I mean, it mattered to us. But to us, it was a measurement of our health and our progress and we just wanted to we want to f feel that we're making progress in our fitness and our health and endurance and in just being the kind of person that can set a goal and go accomplish it that just gives us gives us a good feeling and we do it together we we it's something you and i enjoy as father and son doing together and so to us there's a deeper meaning in that beyond just hey let's 
finish this marathon. Let's get a good time. So when we can translate, we can we translate it to our people that about something that has enduring value. Uh, it creates a lot of energy, but in doing so, we still need to keep it simple by actually having a single core to it. Yeah, there's d definitely nothing more focusing in, than a race. I mean, it's, it's a good practice to, to, to focus. I mean, when all that really mattered, especially the further we went in the race, was the finish line. You know, the finish line, the finish line. It's really all, you really think about it after some point is getting to that, getting over that mark. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, again, looked at Amundsen as lucky, and they look at other leaders as lucky. And the fact is, he did have some good luck, but so did Scott. And they both had bad luck. But ultimately, Amundsen created his own luck. And people want to follow a leader that knows how to create their own luck and help the team create their own luck. And so we looked at four keys that we could learn from Amundsen about making your own luck. Number one, own the outcome. Number two, hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. Number three, follow the discipline of the 20-mile march. And number four, focus on one goal at a time. All right, leaders, to wrap up today's episode, let me recommend two resources for you. First, you can watch a video by Kent Julian with more about his formula E plus R equals O. Also, the best-selling book by Jim Collins, Great by Choice, Uncertainty, Chaos, and Luck, Why Some Thrive Despite Them All. We'll put links to those resources, plus a couple more, in our show notes for this episode, which you'll find at engagingleader.com forward slash 31. And while you're on the show notes page, feel free to provide your thoughts or questions in the comment section, or you can connect with us at the Facebook page for Engaging Leader. And by the way, thank you to several folks for recently liking our Facebook page and helping get the word out. Billy from Kokomo, Indiana, Hassan from Chicago, Dina from Dallas, and Matt from Beaver Creek, Ohio. Don't miss our next episode, 32, which is the second of our two-part series on Lessons from the South Pole. It's called How to Be an Enduring Leader, based on the true story of Ernest Shackleton's Endurance Expedition, which is perhaps history's greatest adventure story, and it has become one of today's most often cited examples of great leadership. This is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with mid-size and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at AspendaleCommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Christopher Steele, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, whether you realize it or not, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of our opportunities to engage the people we care about. <laughs>